you. Thank you. That opening music goes by our house band, not Sam and Dave. But we are Sam and Dave, and this is our podcast. It was once known as the Sally Fowler Rat Pack podcast, but now it's called Digging a Hole, the legal theory podcast. My co-host and colleague at Yale Law School, Sam Moyne, and I use this podcast to talk about legal theory and a variety of law-related topics. What's up, Sam? Doing well. I hope we can have a metropolitan episode at some point. We have to find some way of legally theorizing. We definitely, it. definitely have to. It's uh, maybe we can get Wit to come on. Uh, uh, um, yes. I, it would be. He just did uh, in lieu of fun the other the the uh, Kate Klanek's podcast. Uh, exactly. So uh, maybe we, he's gettable. Yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's uh, we are super fans here on this podcast. So today, uh, I, this is an exciting one for me, David, because uh, you know our colleague, but also one of my gurus, uh, Amy Kapczynski, is coming on. Uh, we're going to experiment with the converting you. Uh, I know you've bragged that you're the neoliberal shill in chief, but uh, it'll be two to one this time, and we'll see. Uh, you know what 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 emerges from the wreckage. So, uh, looking forward to it very much. Um, uh, without further ado, uh, Amy Kipchinski. Welcome to Amy Kapczynski, who is our colleague, a professor of law at Yale uh, with David and me. She's an expert in intellectual property and human rights, uh, teaches con law. But for today's purposes, um, she's done something extraordinary, uh, which is not just to write uh, the Yale Law Journal article with some colleagues that we're going to be discussing, but to build a movement uh, with a few others. She's uh, done something that I think few have done, certainly in recent generations, especially on the left, which is imagine and convene uh, 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 a, something that in, in a short space of time, just a few years, has become nationally prominent, with which includes a blog, conferences. Uh, uh, but this paper is, I think, extremely significant because it is, if you like, a kind of manifesto uh, for the movement that already exists. And I think both David and I want to, you know, ask you not just about the content of the, of the essay that you wrote, um, with the others, but also how, kind of how it, how it relates to the broader politics of intellectual life in the law school. So could you just take a few minutes to begin, um, by, you know, summarizing it, saying anything you want about what you are trying to achieve? Sure. Thanks for having me. It's uh, fun to have the chance to discuss this with you guys. So the paper is trying to sort of set out uh, a framework for why it is we should center questions of law and political economy and legal scholarship now. Um, part of what it starts out with, and what I always often start out with when I talk about this, is the kind of contemporary multiple forms of crisis that we're living through. Right? Uh, so crises of heightened inequality, crises of the, the seeming kind of collapse of kinds of democratic responsiveness in our systems, the climate crisis, um, crisis of care that I think you see really manifest in the COVID pandemic, the real um, fundamental difficulty that we are having caring for one another as well as caring for our planet um, in conditions of our kind of contemporary economy and political economy. And, and all of these crises are really, I think, the background for what is emerging as the law and political economy kind of framework or movement, if you like. 
Um, because I think what they speak to is the inability of the law schools in which many of us grew up in. And there's a kind of generational cast to some of this scholarship, not certainly exclusively. But I think there is a generational cast to it in the sense that many of us grew up in law schools where we found, um, you know, perhaps we came to law school thinking we would be talking about justice and uh, kind of transformation of systems of institutional life and ended up learning a lot about law and economics and efficiency um, as the dominant way to understand what had to happen in fields of private law and learning a constitutional tradition and a public law tradition that um, was quite, um, quite anemic given the scale of the problems that it seemed like we might be headed into. And I think the, the problems that in fact we live in the midst of really do manifest um, some of the difficulties of, you know, that, that current legal kind of paradigms of thought have grappling with these questions of distribution of climate and so forth. And so broadly speaking, that's where the paper comes from and where the kind of coalescing I think is emerging from. And what we try to do in the paper is set out an argument for um, the, 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 the previous state of affairs, the sort of dominant paradigm, which we call the 20th century synthesis, and then some notes, some ideas about what it might mean after we recenter questions of, of law and political economy, where we might want to go next. And the kind of questions and values that we think ought to um, then occupy us in uh, legal scholarship to better address these kinds of crises. And so, the 20th century synthesis, as we describe it, which is really, you could say, a late 20th century synthesis, um, is a, uh, we, we, we argue that there's sort of two pillars to this. And this is a synthesis in kind of conventional legal thought. And part of what we're trying to do is triangulate across legal thought as it happens in law schools, and then the kind of conventional wisdom in law and policy as it's happening in Washington and debates about legislation or inside of agencies or even in the courts, right? And so it's, um, it's, it's broad in its scope, what we're trying to describe. Um, and, and so what we're trying to describe, we, we sort of break it down into two dimensions. So one is what happens in so-called private law fields, and another is what happens in so-called public law fields. But then both of these fields, we think, are kind of reorganized, particularly in the kind of last couple of decades of the 20th century, um, and in, in very particular ways that in fact make it now hard to address the problems that we're talking about. And so you have a set of private law fields that are reoriented around the goal of wealth maximization. And the result of that is to kind of cast to the side or occlude questions of coercion, power, and legitimacy that had really been um, dominant in legal debates since the time of legal realism. And these were fields where law and economics was a, becomes a very um, predominant organizing conversation. There's always been dissenters, of course, from this tradition, but, um, but there's a, there becomes a kind of new mainstream, that question that everybody has to be able to answer and the language that all of our students have to be able to talk in um, uh, becomes um, uh, the language of law and economics, and um, and these are this this becomes dominant in fields that are, in some sense, there's no public and private law distinction really um, uh, that I think we are familiar with, but we're using that those terms sort of loosely to mean the private law stuff are the ones that correspond to fields that are thought of as about the economy now, so contracts and property and antitrust and corporate law and intellectual property, which I teach, and here efficiency analysis comes to kind of um, dominance as an uh, appropriate and obvious marriage of both the descriptive and the normative, right? Uh, that the law does uh, seek efficiency, the law should seek efficiency, uh, and that reorganizes conversations quite fundamentally. Part of what the prioritization of efficiency does is that it marginalizes questions of distribution, right? And so there's very particular ways that we try to show this in the paper. 
um, about how, for example, efficiency uh, embeds within it a um, structural kind of priority for those who are wealthier. So if you use a willingness to pay principle to decide how to allocate an entitlement, um, you know, a nuisance, a question of nuisance law or where to put a park, uh, you're going to end up driving resources towards those typically with a higher ability to pay. And so, we, we, you know, uh, uh, this is pulling on some of uh, Richard Markovitz's work, Zach Liskow's work, right? The sort of a, there's a way in which the efficiency as a criteria, given how it obscures the relationship between ability to pay and willingness to pay, ends up prioritizing uh, and has a distributive valence, in fact. Um, and um, and the other the other feature of of this is that there's a kind of a whole kind of uh, I would say tenet of law and economics that you do efficiency first and distribution later. And um, and that move, of course, does always kind of cast distribution to something that someone else is responsible for and that should happen, if at all, in the tax code and so forth. Um, and it means that it, it becomes very difficult uh, to sort of locate inside of conversations in, in circumscribed by these doctrinal you know, fields that we teach it in law schools. Um, where, where do you talk about distribution, right? Um, the other thing about these, this kind of um, the predominance of efficiency language and, and the particular way that efficiency is framed is that it doesn't offer us any ability to think systematically about the interrelationships between political and economic power. And so there's a kind of reification of the economy, of the market, um, something that has its own rules that we, um, and then that becomes difficult to, let's, let's take a field like antitrust, for example. Uh, antitrust gets reduced to not even just efficiency, but very commonly something even narrower than efficiency, which is a set of price effects. That's the, the concern of antitrust. Whereas a, like historically one might've thought of antitrust, and in fact, many did, as adjudicating questions of political authority and power. Who has the political, do we, do we have firms that have this, that kind of scale of authority over us, whether regulatory authority as consumers, the kind of regulatory authority that Comcast might exert over us, or sufficient power to distort our political process, right? Those kinds of concerns get written out of fields um, as efficiency and then particularly narrow often um, uh, kind of efficiency concerns come to predominate. Um, the other thing that's quite palpable about it is it casts aside questions of the kind of democratic warrant for this move, right? The, the, the theory here is this is done, we do this, we prioritize efficiency because it's a neutral value and everybody values it. Why wouldn't we want to be efficient? Um, and so it took me actually many years of teaching intellectual property law to start to ask the question, but who said we want to be efficient? And if you go to the statute, the statute doesn't tell you that. And where people say it comes from, which is the constitution, is actually kind of a a crazy idea, <laughs> because whatever you think the Constitution said and uh, the many tools that we might have to interpret it, there's nothing in the clause that authorizes intellectual property law that says anything about efficiency or that we have really good reason to think uh, tells us we should care about efficiency. Okay, so that's the kind of private law fields. The second strut of the, the synthesis is that um, in these more nominally political and public law fields like constitutional law. So of course, in these fields, questions of coercion and legitimacy and fairness and distribution remain central. But what's interesting and I think really important about what we're, the, the view that we're sort of trying to stress in the paper and, and in fact coalesce a law and political economy scholarship around is that this is not just about what's happening in law and economics or in the domain of the economy. There's also a way in what's happening across legal doctrine um, and in international law too, right? And we could talk about this more, Sam, is that um, 
there's a kind of delimitation of the questions that are asked or the kinds of power that are appropriate to exercise publicly with reference to a similar kind of law and economics paradigm or a paradigm of market supremacy or a paradigm of neoliberalism. There's a lot of different possible words for this, right? And so these areas of law, we start to see at a kind of increasingly formal conceptions of equality, um, a sort of reification of a state action doctrine that maps onto a kind of liberal account of where the state does and doesn't act um, with the economy and the place that the state doesn't act. Uh, you get a kind of non-structural accounts of discrimination, um, if we're thinking about equal protection law, or also statutory interpretations of discrimination. And investigations of power and coercion often stop where the market is seen to begin. And that leads you to a vision of constitutional equality and liberty that is going to make it very difficult to mount, uh, or even to be have legible as a question in constitutional terms, um, uh, challenges to structural power, economic power. And then you have these very interesting um, areas of doctrine where the constitutional law is actually changing in ways that are reifying or kind of protecting um, economic power from sort of redistributive or regulatory uh, commands. And the First Amendment is the easiest example of this, where First Amendment law comes to be um, uh, much more um, invasive vis-a-vis -vis what Congress can do to regulate commercial speech. And there's lots of ideas that we can show a very direct kind of um, familiarity of um, the, the coming from sort of ideas about who subjects are, how markets work, uh, what the state is, what will we worry about um, uh, that come from economics in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the kind of rise of the new kind of what people call the new lockerism of the First Amendment. So this is, I think, also part of what we're doing here is pulling on a tradition in the new writing about neoliberalism and the history of neoliberalism, which is starts to see neoliberalism um, as an ideology, not just of deregula deregulation or allowing markets to operate across many domains, but actually prioritizing the interests of markets over democratic redistribution. Um, and uh, in fact, protecting uh, those who are powerful in markets from uh, a, the kind of incursions that might happen otherwise, if you weren't constitutionalizing something like um, First Amendment commercial speech protections. And of course we see that um, you know, Citizens United is one example. Janus is another example about the power of, of, uh, and funding of public unions. Um, but there's lots of others. I'd be happy to talk more about that. So, so that's the kind of basic idea, sketching out the, the 20th century synthesis and um, making visible what is in some sense the, the kind of milieu that we grew up in. Um, and by giving it a name, calling it into question. Um, and so the, the, the piece of it is sort of then building political economy analysis to counter this. By political economy, it should be clear by this point, I think that what we mean is not what often is talked about as political un, under the name political economy in economics departments, um, uh, which is the sort of application of rational actor models to the state. Um, or politics, but rather political economy in a classical sense, the way somebody like Adam Smith or Marx would have used that term, um, which is sort of highlighting the interconnection between politics and the economy and thinking about the both how politics constitutes the economy through law, we would say, um, and also how the economic order that we have influences politics, right? So politics shapes our economic order, our economic order shapes politics, and we're interested in how law mediates all of this and sort of joining back up again questions of economy to 
questions of political equality uh, and distribution. Um, and of course, very centrally there, and we spend some time on this in the paper, uh, wanting to bring in not a conventional old style political economy analysis, but one that's capable of thinking about and theorizing the role that race and racism and gender and social reproduction play in the constitution of our political economy today. Um, so so the, the, the kind of point then of this analysis is to sort of bring about a critique of what's missing and lost in the move to the 20th century synthesis, attention to coercion, attention to distribution, attention to the sort of democratic implications of particular kinds of economic order. Um, and um, we can sort of talk about why, what the appeal of the 20th century synthesis was. I think we, need, we probably need to talk about that to kind of um, co convince people that, that parts of it are uh, worth letting go of. But I'll just uh, maybe talk more about that later. But just to say part of what we try to do at the end of the paper is sketch out some ideas about what it would mean to bring back a kind of tradition of critical political economy analysis and what we roughly try to do is talk there about a couple of moves. Rather than focusing on efficiency, for example, we should focus on power. So bring back an analysis of power, think seriously about it, try to differentiate between different kinds of power that we might be interested in. So law's constitutive power being one, how does law construct private power and for whom? Uh, thinking about the sort of social geometry of bar bargains and how law constructs that. Um, this constitutive power is often sort of uh, set, created just as the background to law and economics analysis, for example. So coast, you just start with the distribution the way it is often and then reason from there. Um, you know, interested in market power. And I've been reading and working with many people on, on the kind of questions of the, you know, interesting economic literature that suggests that we have rising market power in today's economy and what to do about that and how to think about that. Um, and thinking about then power through the lens of the interrelationship between political and economic power. So that's one piece sort of efficiency to power. Another is from neutrality to equality. So rather than a kind of conception of neutrality, which is um, uh, often thought of as the virtue of some of the um, kind of 20th century synthesis style approaches uh, to focus more on a robust conception of equality and how to get there. Um, part of that, I think, um, involves a lot of things that we might want to discuss further, like the need to sort of reinvigorate a sense of the capable state um, to build out forms of substantive freedom um, uh, and an economy that actually makes political equality possible. Um, and the last piece is from anti-politics to democracy. So you sounds like you just talked to Steve Tellis, who's written some really important, I think, things about the history of the conservative legal movement and its sort of ostensible neutrality and anti-political nature, whether that's originalism or law and economics. I think they share some part of that DNA. Um, but, but part of it is resisting the idea that there is such a thing as an anti-political place to stand to talk about constitutional meaning or about the economy, um, and instead to make a risky bet on, on democracy as the place in which to work out what we ought to value rather than pretend that we all value the same thing and we just have to work it out technocratically how to get it. So that was probably more of a, an introduction than you wanted, but, but there you go. No, that was great. And I think there are so many threads that we could uh, pull on or kind of discuss there. But I want to start with a discussion of the, like, what's at stake with the 20th century model? So I used to work at uh, George Mason, which obviously is a very different population than our where we work now. Um, um, and all my old colleagues at George Mason used to complain all the time about how elites shaped discourse in ways that were discriminatory towards conservatives, that shut up conservative voices, academia, the press, all of these institutions were elite driven and they were on the outside of this. 
And I always found this very amusing because they were quoted in the press all the time and they were quoted in judicial opinions all the time. They were asked to testify in front of Congress all the time. They were sure to go into positions of power in Washington, which in fact many of them did when, uh, when, the, when power turned. Um, uh, whatever their specific claims about specific institutions, they were elites by any reasonable definition. And I kind of felt the same way about your piece, um, at least the first part of the 21st, the 20th century bit. I mean, you argue that legal scholarship is this kind of monoculture of neoliberal takes squeezing out critical visions and that hegemonic neoliberal discourse renders things that are should be political, apolitical, and ignores questions of distribution and power. But that does not seem to me at all what law schools were like when I was growing up, which is similarly to when you were growing up in Orton or today. Um, I mean, law schools are to the left of any other type of professional school, maybe not parts of humanities, but certainly more to the left of any reasonable, any other major American institution. Um, and they've always been full of people who are skeptical of law and economics. Um, law and economics is, is, was a growing movement inside law schools, but it was surely not the only one. And certainly whether it was even a dominant one is an interesting question. Um, and similarly, it was full of public law scholars uh, uh, who focused on questions of political law and political power. Um, so like, I go to ALEA every year, the American Law and Economics Association. It's like a cool conference, you know, uh, great snacks. They, they, they can afford great snacks at ALEA usually. Um, but like, uh, um, if you took, it's not most people don't go to ALEA. Most law scholars don't go to ALEA. Um, uh, and um, if you took the propositions you announced in this paper, discusses the hegemonic discourse, I wonder how many of them would get 60% accord from American law professors. Um, I'm not sure many of them would. Um, uh, you certainly don't provide any facts uh, that would establish that this is a discourse, kind of a feeling or something. Um, and I, I mean, there are fields in which it's true, and I think that you focus a lot on antitrust, which is probably the best case for this, where economic ideas really did swamp out certain ideas of the kind of political role. But if you looked at other private law fields like property law or even contracts, you wouldn't see a similar story. At least I don't think you would see a similar story. Uh, law and econ stories would be an element of these stories. And similarly in public law, if you, you focus on kind of First Amendment and some kind of structural due process stuff. But like if you talk about anti-poverty law or environmental law or local government law where I work, like these, the, the, the law and econ surely didn't sweep the field in any of these areas, nor did even law and economics, where as it exists, as many of us practice it, really background any of these questions of political power, right? So that they're in the foreground of a lot of questions in say where I work, um, which we can talk about in a little bit. Um, the last, so a question, like first question is like, is this true? Is the 21st, 20th century manner as dominant as you say? And then the second question I have is like, what's at stake here? If, it, if in fact I'm right and, you know, like uh, one's take, your takes about what makes for good contract law or whatever are not excluded or even that uncommon, they're just not dominant. Um, like what's, what does it matter? Maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. You have to make the arguments in specific cases and the existence of this big baddie discourse doesn't seem to turn, not, not much seems to turn on it. Um, so why is it important that, uh, I mean, my, what I wonder a little bit is whether you've set up this kind of big other to, uh, hide that people just often don't agree with some of the takes that you're offering. And like, there's a real honest debate in some of these areas and some things win and some things other win. And uh, like the, the establishment of this kind of other who's dominant is necessary for some purpose, but I'd like you to tell me what it is. Um, great. So fun. Um, you know, this is a short paper actually for, I mean, if you don't read law review articles, you'll think it's really long, but for law review articles, very short. And we wanted to write something short. And so there's a lot it doesn't cover. And I mean, you're absolutely right that we don't go through it in any methodical way and try to 
construct a kind of intellectual history of the story that we're telling. And I think what we're hoping is that um, there's a, a, a way that this story will resonate with people who do know the structures of their own fields and that other people will write into the spaces that we're sketching out and either disagree with us or agree with us. I do think what well, the story we're telling is right, though. And I'll, I mean, I give you a couple of, maybe it's worth being a little bit more clear about what we're saying. So we're not saying that there were not dissenting traditions. Um, but I think one of the things that you see um, is that a lot of the debates then become law and economics versus the dissenting position, right? And in torts, it's retribution. And in, you know, um, property, it's personhood. But, you know, there's like a poll and then there's something else, which is some people who do some deontological stuff or maybe old schooly doctrinal stuff arguing with the efficiency account. And that's, again, starting with kind of the 1L economic curriculum here. Um, I think you really do see this sort of new polarity emerge. And another way to think about it is, you know, do you think a law student writing a paper today um, about, uh, I don't know, uh, how we ought to regulate communications uh, carriers or how we ought to think about patent law or how we ought to think about, you know, a do not call list, doesn't have to answer the question, a question that's fundamentally formed by efficiency analysis, whether it's exactly described in that way, they have to answer all those questions. And, and, and in fact, not only those questions, but be literate with a conversation. Well, what about transaction costs? And how about information costs? And you know, what about externalities? And so that though, to be literate in, the, in many, many fields of law in a way that was not true before law and economics, some of these concerns would have been raised, right? And in a very simplistic way, you could say law and economics is just the return of laissez-faire, right? Uh, it's with some, some differences, right? But that it does seem to me that there's a, a, very, um, a very clear way in which the narratives that we're describing come to a certain kind of dominant. They're not uniformly dominant. And of course, what academics do is they fight about things, um, but what it does is, is constitutes the terrain of the debate. Um, such that, for example, you know, you, you, um, there's this really interesting conversation happening in law schools right now about where race went in all kinds of curricula and courses. And we, that may in fact change the kinds of questions that we have to answer, right? And that's in some sense what we were trying to do um, with LPE as well. And I do think that the rise of this kind of new kind of market supremacist set of ideas um, changed all kinds of fields and, and in different ways in the public law side. So, you know, cost benefit analysis, which really only gets going at the same time is very much the instantiation of these ideas inside of, um, of the administrative state. And so it's a very limited form. Cost benefit analysis isn't even in when it's implemented what people think it is in theory. It's a very limited in particular form, but it's very much the kind of um, embedding of these ideas about you know, fundamentally markets measuring the value of different things, commensurating them, and then determining what we ought to do um, based on that idea. And so, so I do think, and we could talk sort of doctrinally on the public law side and sort of go through different areas that I, um, uh, beyond the First Amendment, that we might want to talk about this. But, but I think we also don't pretend to be um, uh, comprehensive in the way that you're describing. But I do think what we're describing is true. And, um, and, you know, I'll just give you one more example, which is intellectual property law. I mean, the class that I teach wasn't taught before the 80s. People taught patent law, they taught copyright law, they taught trademark law, but people thought they didn't necessarily have all that much to do with one another. And I tell my students, okay, now look at these statutes. Do they have anything to do with each other? Not really, except that you have to have, if you have a theory of information economics, then they all suddenly relate to one another. And here's the field. And so there just isn't, the, I mean, the whole field doesn't exist without this way of thinking. Um, 
So I do think that um, I guess I'd, I'd be happy to hear, you know, and, and agree with the fact that there have been a lot of critiques, including and some of the ones we rely upon, actually knock down uh, kind of unrefutable critiques of some of the tenets that we're talking about, about the sort of morality of efficiency that happened all throughout this period. And I think what, interestingly, what, what the result of those critiques are is, is um, not so much a retreat or a reformulation of the debates as a kind of bifurcation. And so people who do law and economics just keep doing it in, uh, in the fields in which they come to predominate. And then people like, I think about my colleague, Bruce Ackerman, who, you know, um, used to write, read, write about property and he became a con law guy. And so you have this kind of division of labor um, where people who, who were literate and were interested in law and economics really kind of took over this private side, not, not exclusively, obviously. There's always polls of debate. That's how we function. Um, but, 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 and, then, and, then, and then people in the kind of public law curriculum cease to talk about um, uh, some, of this, uh, the, some, some of the questions that they might have uh, once or, um, or, or sort of designate certain features of debates like, you know, do we need unions or not? Well, that's a question of economic efficiency, right? Uh, and labor law falls out of conversations about constitution. Um, you know, that wasn't true once. Um, questions about banking fall out of constitutional law. That wasn't true once, right? And so, so that's kind of part of, I guess, my, I guess a, a, a briefish response to your, to your really good question. Well, I'm utterly persuaded, you know, I, 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 it may be that I started twice in the humanities and crossed over both times to law schools, but it, it is quite shocking when you enter from that admittedly kind of more hegemonically left uh, locale and enter law schools, how, how reactionary even the liberals seem. Uh, and as you say, they've, they've in a sense taken shelter within public law and allowed um, you know, many, many of these views to become pretty orthodox in, in private law. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not some diversity left, but that the question is, you know, what's the balance? What are the acceptable moves? So in relation to that, I, I kind of want to ask a, a first question about what does it mean to be building a kind of intellectualism um, for a law school movement? Because in, in a way, it is fair to say that um, many of these critiques have been made in the past, and not just in the the more liberal past, like debating, you know, whether wealth is a value or whether wealth maximization can be defended normatively, but even before. Um, but w what you've done in this piece, I mean, first we haven't even mentioned that not just that there are co-authors, but there are pretty pretty different people, Jed. Jedediah Britton Purdy, David Singh Graywall, our former colleague, and Sabil Rahman. And in, in a way, it seems like what your goal was was not to um, exactly um, pr propound a, a new view so much as to abstract from an emerging movement and what a lot of different people have been doing um, across pretty different doctrinal areas and and in 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 kind of new incursions into private law areas and to to try to let's say synthesize um and yet you know that suggests that law schools can be a space uh for a lot of kind of left critique um or at least progressive um argument and and you know it's it's somehow opposing 
a much more hegemonic neoliberalism in governance or in the lack of governance. So to me, to me I'm just trying to get at the way in which um, the intellectual project kind of presupposes a space that's pretty favorable, or at least more favorable than kind of the larger world of governance. But is is it a law school project? I mean, what are the what are the implicit politics of this? Where you know we we train students differently, we make sure that they don't just become neoliberals out of law school, and then what happens? I mean, is 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 there a link between the intellectual project and some larger political project out in the nation or the world? Um, because it, it, that's not exactly how it's framed. It's more framed in terms of kind of an emerging scholarly movement. And so I just want you to reflect on you know, how you think of this as a movement piece. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think... The way that I see it, and I don't know, I mean, there's lots of different people who are con- kind of contributing to this um, sense of a movement, I guess, um, to this formation. Um, so you mentioned my co-authors and the blog, you know, we've dozens of people, maybe even hundreds at this point who've written for the blog. There's Appeal, Association for Political Economy and Law with Martha McCluskey and Angela Harris and others. There's a new journal, a journal of law and political economy. So there's actually lots of different people might answer this question in different ways. And I think that's actually probably no different than how many crits at the time or law and economics folks would describe the purposes of their enterprise. So undoubtedly this is gonna be a little bit partial on my side, but I, I think there's a very important connection between the intellectual moves that we're trying to make and um, a space of action outside of law schools. And that in a way comes out of the framing uh, that I started with, which is to say, I think that what's imminent to this kind of um, re-articulation of an attempt to kind of take back a certain kind of intellectual space is a set of urgent concerns in the world. Uh, you know, if you live in California, <laughs> climate change is at the forefront of your mind, or at least it was last week. Um, and um, and so if that's part of the, 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 the kind of urgency um, of the, the reframing, then, you know, it's no surprise that many people who are kind of trying to do this work are themselves deeply engaged in attempts at law reform, attempts at movement building. You know, so there's lots of people who write for our blog, for example, who are quite involved with abolitionist politics and Black Lives Matter, sometimes in a sort of um, uh, lawyer as uh, technician sort of way, like lawyering for people, sometimes as public intellectuals writing about, sometimes um, involved in and moving back and forth between organizations or staffers' offices. And I think this probably would distinguish some of the feel of at least what you know, this kind of LPE, Law and Political Economy Group, is doing from the, the critical legal studies moment, where I think they 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 were living in a very different time, and I think actually much more distant from the idea of uh, concerted reform efforts, much less the idea of reform through mass politics and the kind of need for invigorating and bringing a set of ideas such as these to enable democratic uh, moves in politics, um, which is, I think, very much the feel of of what's going on under the the kind of hood in LP. Which isn't to say there's a kind of an, an, a law and political economy position on all of these different things, but a lot of what people are writing about and using these tools for is precisely to try to make changes to whether it's antitrust law. From my perspective, um, the nitty gritty questions about how governments can use patents, whether domestically or internationally. Um, you know, I spend 
uh, you know, I spent a bunch of time this week thinking about trade secrecy arguments and vaccine data transparency because I'm really concerned about the COVID vaccine situation and whether or not we are going to be able to be confident that that vaccine works well. So, and there's lots of, I mean, I think all, many of us who are writing into this space and whose work, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of this work was happening anyway. I mean, I would now call some of the work that I did since the beginning of, of the writing that I've done as a law professor, law and political economy work. It's, it's a way of interconnecting and describing the relationship between work that otherwise we didn't quite have a way of describing as connected. Maybe we had a feeling that our work was connected, but we certainly didn't have places to meet and I'm back to kind of build on each other's work or critique it. Um, I think if we succeed, that part of what happens is there become deep fights within the community of people writing about political economy, just as there are deep fights within the community of people writing about law and economics. But what becomes legible is a different terrain on which to fight. And then, you know, Sam, you and I can mix it up about what it means to democratize the courts. Um, and uh, but, you know, we'll we might do that in a different way uh, when we're thinking uh, through these lenses and, and with these kinds of questions and problems in mind. So I wanted to follow up right there because one of the things that I thought was interesting was the integration of kind of an internal critique to scholarship and a critique of law as it develops. And it seemed to me, though, that it trended towards a kind of seminar room centrism in which what's happening in the law schools is directly translated into what's happening in the courts and in Congress and everywhere else. Whereas that doesn't seem to me obvious. It seems to me in many ways that some things that the law, that I, I'm not saying that law, law, legal scholarship or scholarship generally is unimportant. I happen to think I'm very important. Um, uh, but um, you are, David. It, I, I, it, it, I, I'm, I'm glad we agree. Um, uh, but it, but rather that like lots of ideas get produced in academia and some of them get seized on by the political movements and it's not causal in the way that it seems to be or integrated in the way. So let me give an example. Like it's very hard to find an economist or a law and econ person who doesn't believe in congestion pricing. Congestion pricing is one of the ideas that is most likely to get assent from economists, law and econ people. It's one of these ideas that everyone agrees on and it exists almost nowhere. I mean, in fact, in the United States, it may exist in New York City in a kind of bastardized version, but doesn't really exist. And it's like, it's not that the existence or even dominance of ideas in an academic world necessarily translates into things about politics, nor is the reverse true. So that uh, idea can be decidedly minoritarian in legal legal scholarship, um, even very minoritarian, even minoritarian among people who you know are generally on the same political side or whatever, um, but yet take the courts. And so I wonder a little bit if you could talk about, I mean, so, I mean, I mean, I could think of a couple of examples of this, but like First Amendment Lochnerism has never been popular among law professors. It's dominated by the courts. And, you know, there are, you could, you could count on your hand, on, on, uh, on a few hands, the number of, uh, of con law people who really believe in kind of a strong form version of uh, First Amendment Lochnerism. So like, what's your vision of like how legal scholarship and the world relate to one another? Um, because it was a little bit, it seemed like an idea formed in the law schools and then it like necessarily and causally became what the president says and what courts say. So what do you think? So um, I, I want to make Sam answer this question as the intellectual historian among us. I mean, the way that ideas transit into politics are very, very complex. They're complex even setting aside law schools, right? Um, and, uh, and of course, then law schools have this sort of particular 
you know, maybe different, a different relationship between how ideas move into the world because of the way that we participate in the framing of actual legislation or the framing of amicus briefs and so forth. There's absolutely no direct relationship between, you know, the, the ideas that we have and the talk that we do and what manifests in the world and, and, and probably for the best, um, certainly if we believe in democracy. Um, but I do think uh, that there, and I, and I think it's actually really important, and some of what we do mention, and again, very briefly, because of the nature of the piece, is the work of people like Steve Tellis, who actually try to connect the dots and show the relationship between and how it is that ideas, both about originalism and law and economics, moved from the academy into the real world. And you're absolutely right that that doesn't happen in any sort of symmetrical way or in any way that reflects the best ideas of that movement that then of course, because the best ideas will win, they get reflected in politics. There's absolutely a kind of field of interests um, and, and movement mobilizing, sometimes it's mass, mass movement right? Like witness the emergence of the defund the police moment, right? And sometimes it's a movement in the way that Steve Tellis talks about the conservative legal movement, which is a bunch of people in suits, right? Um, uh, running uh, Pareto in the Pines and judge school for people. And uh, I'm not, you know, many people might not want to think of that as a movement, but it's exactly an important way to understand the, the kind of circuits by which these ideas come to matter. And, you know, I think that is, that those, those are good descriptions of, um, of how ideas come to matter. It's not simple and it's certainly not outside in my view of a field of power. Um, and, and, and this is true, I think, written more largely right now outside of law schools. But the, I mean, I think it's both to me uncontestable that the ideas that are, are, are being um, debated and the terms under which the debates happening in the academy have an impact on politics and that they don't directly correspond to political debates um, but that there are all kinds of ways in which the movement happens that has everything to do with how politics happens generally. And so money plays a role and organizing plays a role and, but also persuasiveness and what seems persuasive plays a role too, uh, because it's absolutely the case that congestion pricing, you know, is not popular, nor is a climate, you know, a carbon tax um, politically. And even if many economists think it's a good idea, it is also the case though, that there's lots of things, you know, the relationship between the minimum wage and um, politics that I think the, the ideas that economists did have and the kind of forms of consensus that they did have really mattered politically. And, and, and the fact of started to change, which has also mattered politically, although maybe some of those ideas have started to change because of politics and not only because of the kind of virtuous uh, thought processes that happen inside of economics. The, the question I want to ask now, it's sort of anticipated in your, your prior answers. Um, it, it it really it really want to get at um, kind of the the place of theorizing in this new movement and and you know which should help us place it in the traditions of modern legal thought, especially progressive legal thought. And and this is sort of summarizing some things you said. So I'm really interested in you know whether you'd agree with it. If you go back, as you said, to the founders of critical legal studies, first of all, they're they're doing the highest of high theory. They're connected to European philosophy, and they really care about that stuff. You know, structuralism, post-structuralism, um, and they don't write together. You know, it, what what really concerns them most of all is to propound a, the the correct system. And you know, maybe there are intellectual reasons for that, the kind of nature of intellectual life at the time, but also, as you're suggesting, they're kind of refugees from the 60s in a very cold climate politically. 
and they don't really have any alternatives, no movements with, you know, which to interface. Um, this is different, and it strikes me that it's really harkens back not to critical legal studies, but to the original progressives that who founded um, legal realism. Like I, you know, when I read this, it sort of feels like Robert Hale could have written this. It is like Robert Hale's work, you know, a century or a bit more later, and especially the last part. Um, really does feel like ma- making exactly the moves that he made. Um, and if you think more broadly about kind of neo-progressive scholarship, it's kind of remarkable that it's not just, you know, very close to that stuff, but it's also like placing so much hope in antitrust and reforming antitrust in particular, which was, you know, so central to progressive theory and politics. So, I guess I'm wondering, um, do you accept that? Um, are, are there any, let's say, costs for um, departing what really had been the model post-war radical project in legal thought, namely critical legal studies? I mean, which is, okay, there are a couple sites to Duncan Kennedy in this, but it's really not in touch with m- much of that work except, you know, to a few of in a few particular ways we could get into whereas it does seem much more in touch with a kind of broader legal realism um basically an attempt to challenge so-called private authority and assert you know public governmental power over it for the sake of a publicly created freedom i mean that that's you know that's you know and democratic control i mean that's really what the second half is about so um and whether or not there are there any costs, I mean, it, is it kind of amazing that we would make, be making some of the same moves a century later, or is that just what we should be doing? I mean, so I hope that where we're at is it's a sort of beginning of the theorization of, of, of uh, you know, that, uh, that we'll be doing kind of in this framework. And so that we shouldn't kind of imagine uh, that this, that we quite know yet where our theorizations will go. Um, and, you know, just in the way that I guess at the beginning of legal realism or the beginning of, you know, CLS, you probably wouldn't have had much sense of what the intellectual debates, what would the polls emerge around. Um, so, so I do think it's really important to, to have this be a space of theorization in part, because I think that one of the things that intellectuals can provide to the world as well as academics can provide to the world, uh, is in fact, precisely the space and the time and the ability to draw together resources, whether they be historical or philosophical, um, and to bring them to bear on debates. And 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 it's it's it may or may not be surprising, but this is a lot of what people actually want academics for in the world of practice, is not because we're good at making political trade-offs or figuring out how to mobilize people, but because we know, guess what? Uh, because we know how to connect up ideas and talk about the relationship between you know, um, I don't know, an idea like public goods and what difference it might make to talk about something through the lens of public goods versus the lens of essential needs, right? And 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 your work, Sam, you know, I think about playing this role very much, right? You think uh, it matters to those who work in the world to, to know that there's a difference between something like sufficiency uh, arguments and something like equality arguments, and it will shape how people make those arguments in the world. Now, that said, so I, I think theorization is really important. 
And, you know, I have been known to spend my time reading fancy deconstructive, you know, philosophy and, you know, democratic theory. And I think that's important. And I think one of the things that we'll have to theorize in a much deeper way as we move, for example, is democracy, um, which now is a kind of empty signifier in this conversation. Um, but but I, I guess I want to say, I, I think that the, the, in, what, the reason I'm interested in doing this, and I think many of us are interested in doing this, is very generational and contemporary. And it, it is exactly shaped by a more democratic, I think, idea um, of uh, the kind of what it would mean to bring about a more egalitarian society than was present, at least as I understand it, in what you might call the mainstream of critical legal studies, right? Where I think there was both less political space and possibility, um, but also a sense that one could maybe, um, uh, you know, sort of tinker within the system and you switch around a bunch of legal rules and that that's how power is allocated is, you know, and this is a kind of idea that I associate with Duncan's work, which is a very powerful idea. And I teach Duncan's work, Duncan Kennedy's work, but, but I, I think it's a very different vision of what political power is, which is also, um, uh, I think, inflected very much by the sort of post-structuralism of the time, right? Um, as opposed to now where we're at, which is, I think, an ascendant interest in the idea of mass mobilization and um, a different kind of openness to the very possibility of more substantial and radical change through appeals to democratic power building. Uh, if that's your theory, then it doesn't quite make as much sense to um, uh, to only operate on the landscape of, or to sort of predominantly operate in the landscape of continental social thought or something like that. So I, this is exactly where I want to go. So that's great. Um, one of the problems of like kind of high theory or even kind of these kind of grand historical narratives, it's a little hard to know where to ground like the actual claims that you expect to be made. And for a movement or a series of ideas, obviously there can be a lot of them. Um, and a lot of the, the the examples come from IP and antitrust. And I'm, I don't do either one of those things. But there's one sentence about land use. So I was really excited to read it. Um, it's in a footnote. And so I'm going to read it, which it says, um, we have in mind here processes, for example, that invite workers to help staff and run wage boards, setting wages and labor standards, residents to run zoning and community benefits boards and the like. Now, from the perspective of what I do, this is kind of funny because, of course, um, we already have residents running land zoning boards. Um, land use is the exclusively done by local government or almost exclusively done by local government. It's the most participatory of any important economic regulatory field. Um, uh, if you like trying to ask like, who decides land use in Greenwich or Mountain View, the most consequential places for land use. It's certainly residents or people who are extremely responsive to residents or Branford and Guilford or whatever examples you want to do. Um, they are, it is extremely local and extremely democratic, res democratically responsive to the claims of residents or nearby residents. And notably, your argument sounds a great deal like probably the most well-known land use argument, which is a classic public choice argument. Bill Fischel argued that homeowners uh, get invested in politics, so they've invested so much of their wealth in their house. Um, uh, and as a result, they hawkeye what governments do in a way that most voters don't. Um, and these home voters dominate land use discussions at like they dominate other parts of local governance and uh, control uh, land use. Um, and this has been, there have been many of us who have been critical of this, both kind of left and neoliberal in sorts of ways, um, that this privileges incumbents, it has ec bad economic effects and 
it interferes with growth, equity, and all sorts of other things. But your story or the story in the democratic section actually sounds a lot like public choice. And so this is the question I have for you, which is to what extent is your story of democracy just that's very similar to stories about public choice, um, except just by but saying neoliberal a few times or uh, or um, kind of saying no at the beginning of their sentences. Of course, public choice has theories about um, the way in which political power is expressed in governance. Um, it has a skeptical view of the outputs of government, similarly the way you do. Um, I mean, obviously, you have a different skepticism, but it's a similar way, the way that power translates into government outcomes that you uh, don't, that you and they don't like. Um, so this is my question about the, this is the last, which is like, to what extent are you doing public choice, but without any of the formalism and uh, then saying it's bad? Um, well, so, I mean, I think part of what you're getting to is, is in fact, some of the conversations that I think are the most interesting and important to have, which is sort of what does it mean, for example, to um, displace, um, you know, some of what we describe, whether it's cost benefit analysis or other kinds of sort of technocratic economism with something more democratic, how do you democratize the administrative state? And I think that is very much a kind of area that I want to Think about it, I have a lot to learn about, what, you know, and that, that's some where I think the debates should go. Um, what I wouldn't say is where it should go is towards public choice theory, and that's because I think public choice theory is, is rooted around a pretty inadequate conception of both politics and the subject in ways that are just going to reiterate some of what we've been talking about so far, right? Um, so I don't think... Um, that it's an adequate picture of what goes on, whether a zoning board or, or in other kinds of politics, to imagine that we're all self-interested actors that know our interests a priori, and then that they just express them, and then that there's an iron rule of politics, which is that the concentrated interests win, and the diffuse interests, because I think interests are constituted by ideas, they change in time, you need a hermeneutic to understand what advances your interests, um, and that, in fact, that what, what we're engaged in in politics and in society is precisely debating, you know, who the appropriate subjects are, what our interests are, how we achieve them and so forth. And, you know, um, one actually the first larger article I wrote as a professor was about this in the field of intellectual property and how sort of ideas shaped who understood themselves to be an intellectual property holder and therefore what coalitions emerged. And even in the areas you would think of as very public choice and businessy, um, that in fact ideas change all of that. Um, and so, so the, this goes back to sort of some of the impoverishment, I think, of the, the minimalism that comes along with a, sort of a, a way of modeling people that we do to be parsimonious in economics, but that I think doesn't help us really adequately think about politics and democracy. Um, so that's to say, I think um, what, 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 what I do think is, um, uh, I guess I do find compelling about the analogy is that I worry about a lot of the same things that people who talk in the language of public choice theory worry about. Um, and one of the great, I think, um, uh, ironies of the power of neoliberal thought is that, the, the sort of, the, is that it made the state more like the story that neoliberals tell about it, right? Um, it made this in part by um, some of the changes that happened under the guise of neoliberalism and in part because of a loss of confidence in institutions, in public spiritedness, right? You redescribe it as being impossible to have a thing as public spirit. And then it turns out that people are less public spirited. And, you know, if you want, you can go to this fabulous literature about, you know, the effects that economics courses have on how people play 
um, you know, play the prisoner's dilemma kinds of games, right? I mean, economics is normative in that sense too. It describes us as people who are self-interested and in fact, along the way, uh, seems to make at least some people more self-interested. Um, so which is to say, um, I am concerned about the same kinds of things that you would call capture and rent seeking and um, fundamentally corruption, but I'm not convinced that either the, the rubric for an analyzing it through the lens of public choice is helpful, um, particularly if what you think about is you need to build a conception of public power and public authority, uh, which can't really exist in some legitimate way through public choice theory. Um, uh, much less something um, like um, public spiritedness and so forth. Um, so, so I, 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 but, but I share some of the concerns very much so. And in that way, I think there's a kind of compatibility between a lot of the, a lot of the arguments that you might make about the limits of these institutional forms. But I do think there's some stakes in how you make them, uh, both in terms of the, what, what the entailments of the language are and also um, who might be able to make those kinds of arguments most effectively. Amy, that was a fantastic answer set of answers and and it was really generous of you to take your time uh, i'm sure david before too long will join me as one of your fellow travelers uh, just he has to get over a few you know final a few final hurdles i don't, I don't it will happen <laughs> given the kind of way in which uh the economy produces ideas that tectonically in the piece it seems inevitable really it's kind of uh it's uh it's it's we're we're all, we're all slaves to the master narrative so it's a um a uh, uh, uh perhaps we'll see uh, it was funny when you were it's just the power of the ideas david it's just the power of the ideas this is what i was saying thank you so much uh this was a real pleasure um uh this was uh this is yeah. real clan bake so thank you so much thanks so much thanks amy, amy.